Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Ken Collins, an AWS serverless hero and principal engineer at Custom Inc. Ken has been working in the software industry for more than two decades and is a longtime blogger, open source software advocate, and an organizer for the Ruby user group in Norfolk, Virginia. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing great, Ryan. I really appreciate you having me on the show. I do. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm really happy to have you here. Um, it's really cool that you have AWS serverless hero and that you're also been part of an organization like Custom Inc. It's been doing a lot of incredible stuff. Now, I don't know if I've uh, been doing this for 20 years or so. I, I used to be a graphic artist, and I was in middle management, and I used to be an account executive at an agency, and was a marketing director at an e-commerce company. And I think I've only been programming for about, uh, I don't know, I have to do some math, maybe 12 years, maybe 11. And uh, so, But Custom Inc. has been in business for 20 years. For, the, for Custom Inc. specifically, I guess like we had to dial back a bit. Um, to get to custom ink. Um, you had a long career leading up to it. So do you mind kind of giving some more insight into like how you transitioned into where you are now? Absolutely. I, I love um, sort of my personal story. I think the uh, the thing that interests me the most is that I've always been a, maybe a little bit technical, but definitely am completely 100% self-taught. You know, I, I had a, a high school degree uh, and even then it was still, I had to get summer school to get my uh, diploma. Basically, everything I know now is is just a, a bunch of hard work and, you know, thanks to the internet and a whole bunch of articles where people take the time out to explain things. And uh, I've taken a lot of my time to try to figure out what that is and, and just learn everything that I can. And it, it's hard, right? So like, uh, I've definitely probably changed structurally careers about, say, three to four times in my life. So I think uh, about 12 years ago, I got my first job as my first time software engineer. And it only took me about a year or so to get really heavily involved with open source. Uh, I think back then, my largest open source project was writing the low-level C bindings for Ruby uh, to talk to SQL Server. And uh, and hence, did the Active Record SQL Server adapter for the Rails project. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, you said one year in and you were doing that? Yeah, that was... Um, by uh, necessity. So like, you know, I worked at a company that was doing SQL Server on Rails. And, you know, I think we had adopted Rails at that company right when it was uh, maybe 1.0 or, or pre-1.0 release. So eventually when Rails 1.26 came around, they kind of dropped the native SQL Server work that was integrated into Rails and, and sort of focused on MySQL, Postgres, and uh, SQLite. So I wanted to have a really good job and be happy and continue to program in this awesome language. So uh, I took it upon myself to, to pick up the adapter project and, and try to own it so that I could have fun at work. Right. <laughs> so that's the thing, right? Like uh, a lot of the work that I do solves that problem where it solves it for me so I can not think about it. Yeah, that's a really cool topic. And that's something that uh, I wanted to talk about as well, which was uh, I saw all the open source stuff that you've done, Custom Inc. does. Uh, there was one project specifically um, that I think would be a great time to kind of bring this up, uh, the Lambi project. And it kind of plays off the Ruby stuff that you started with, um, and it's grown out. And then there was another part of it, which was, uh, you know, what does it feel like for developers when you work at a company that actually releases stuff to the open source community? And is it rewarding to you? And, and how does it benefit a company? Yeah, I, I think it's rewarding for me. Um, I think it, you know, I definitely approach problems differently. I, 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 uh, I don't ask for permission. I just do, right? So uh, um, even at big companies, I can maybe work for your advantage. Maybe not. I don't know. But like, uh, I don't think there's ever a point at Custom Inc. where uh, I had to go to a, like a manager and go, "Hey, I would like to write open source. Can I do that?" Right? Like, it's 
it feels to me like the it's pretty clear on the boundaries are on where certain solutions lie. So I usually step forward with open source work and and then sort of backtrack into it. Uh, uh, so I would say, you know, if you know you're writing software, um, in most cases, a lot of it, in some cases, depending upon where you sit, try open source first, right? And um, in some cases, maybe try not asking for permission or just doing it, right? And then uh, I found a lot of the people that I worked with, uh, whom I've probably been very lucky to work with, very good mentors, you know, managers and uh, uh, VPs and such to where I present to them what I'm working on. And they're like, that's great. It'll be open source. Uh, now I, you know, with this sort of implicit things where you think about maybe security or other people's contribution, I think any company would recognize that um, you know, doing open source software or having good content on tech blogs that might help with recruiting uh, is a win-win for everybody. Yeah, no, it's like uh, when when the company has that kind of recognition as well. It's like they, it's it's like you take these internal things because everyone's building like some version of you know the software that we write normally is like repeated across companies uh, to a large degree, and so they all they're all building their own specific service uh, that does something. And then it's like that that thing can now be shared out to the open source community publicly. Um, other people can kind of like view that. And I know not only customing, but I think Nordstrom's done a lot of stuff around that too, right? Oh, nice. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that kind of loops me back into something the the way that you've kind of talked about step forward first. Um, uh, don't ask for permission. Maybe ask for forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. I read in your LinkedIn bio actually that uh, you had like influences and values. Uh, that were there. Um, I think two that kind of popped out to me were a hardcore aversion to complexity and that teaching is the best avenue to learning. Um, what what made you decide to write these down? And do you have like very standardized principles that you follow uh, on a day to day basis? Well, it um, you know, let's say let's touch the first one about the aversion to complexity. I um, oftentimes in my software engineering career. There will be a time to where I learn maybe some sort of computer science terms for the things that I call just basic. Since I don't have that sort of classical education, the way that I approach and solve problems to me just makes sense, right? And I'm sort of motivated by this weird sort of internal monologue that I don't know how to express well, right? Like, uh, you know, one way that I say with like the SQL Server adapter and the work that I did there, I did all that so that I could basically solve the business problems. and you know, there's certain strategies I took when I wrote that, right? Like how I didn't want the adapter to be coupled to certain ODBC connections or other things like that, right? So I solved all the problems in native T-SQL, which is the, you know, the, the, the native language of a SQL server rather than doing underlying things, right? And that made the adapter more portable and stuff. And, you know, I would learn terms for that, those abstractions later on. But to me, it just sort of made sense. So I definitely, I don't know if it's just the way that I approach problems or the fact that I don't have a computer science degree. I might have sort of more like a, if I had a degree, it would probably be something with liberal arts or just, I don't know, writing or something else. I don't know, uh, where I just approach these problems a little bit differently. And then I think uh, taking back sort of like giving back to the community. Everything I've learned is from a blog post or somebody taking the time to do something. So to me, it just seems really natural to want to go through and, and do that same thing as well. I've also found it's basically the best way for me to remember something. And a, a part of it's kind of like uh, this thing where I'm, you know, if I go through and I do these articles and I do teach people things, then what they're going to do is find holes where I haven't done things right. Or they're going to teach me things in return. Uh, you know, did you think about this or something like that? So I feel like um, maybe it's the type of 70s type of weird Montessori school that I went to when I was younger, where I think I don't even know what grades were until maybe sixth or seventh grade. And 
where somebody told me there are such things as A's and B's, right? Nobody told me these, like in the, the type of school that I went to when I first got So I just do things that might sound weird. Though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's really cool, actually. From my background as well, I, um, uh, you know, I don't have like a college degree either in computer science. Um, I actually went through a code school, learned how to program, uh, built an Alexa skill, learned about serverless, and then kind of uh, went from there. And, and what's really interesting is like, yeah, it's like you read all this stuff online, you see how all these other people are doing things, you kind of influence it. But I've, I've kind of had that same approach when I write software as well, is I don't know, I may not know every single, you know, top of the line, like uh, paradigm that's being used uh, in software development. Um, but so I, I try to write things in like a simple way, with the idea being that like, potentially like a junior developer could pick it up. And I, and I think, I, I don't know, it feels like there's something there, right? When you write simple software like that, it, it, you may not be the, the guy in the corner with his hood on or whatever, you know, knocking out every single third party library with like X's and O's and stuff. But um, the more readable it is, there's a, there's a huge benefit there. Yeah. I also think, too, there's like, um, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the world uh, and far from it. But I feel like, uh, you know, that that my capacity to only sort of wrap my head around as much as like maybe a small percentage of maybe what other people can do sort of forces me to like think of things in more simple terms. Right. So like um, it's kind of like a weird thing to say, like like I'm a huge fan of Node, JavaScript. You know, I love front end frameworks, but also at the same time, I'm sort of risk averse and sort of fatigued from the JavaScript frameworks, right? And which is why I love Ruby so much. So it's not to say that things like, uh, you know, these sort of things like with React or, you know, the, the simpler counterparts like stimulus.js and whatnot, which I could wrap my head around more. It just feels like I would I would rather spend a, a lot of quiet time trying to figure out what a core small problem is and just engineering the most simple way that I can to meet that thing than to, uh, you know, jump first into a bunch of head-first complexity and just adopt it right up. I would question if that complexity was needed. And I think that's good in all engineers, whether you're doing product stuff and you're, you know, you're dealing with the business and asking the business, you know, do you really need this software, right? Maybe the best software you need is no software and just really being critical of asking questions like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of people start to bring this up, the, uh, the idea that all code is liability. Yeah, and there's, uh, uh, from what I've recently learned too, a huge no code movement, right? And that's, I think Amazon has a recent product. I think it was called the Honey Code. Yeah. And, and so, you know, to kind of dial back a bit, um, mm-hmm. we're talking about Ruby and we're talking about solving these problems and, and you kind of stuck around with Ruby for a, for a long time. Um, Custom Inc., they release, uh, Lambi. Um, assumingly this came out of the migration to serverless that y'all did a long time ago. And so I guess for the listeners out there, uh, how did this story unfold with, uh, with Custom Inc. and with serverless? So I think the, the, the best way to describe it is like, if I had been in software about uh, 11 or 12 years now, this journey would have started about at year 10 for me, which oddly enough, I think is the amount of time you need to really get good at something, right? Like they say 10 years or so many amount of hours. So at about two years ago, I sort of capped out on my career of like, okay, I can do Rails apps really well. I've done front-end JavaScript frameworks. I've done various amounts of gems. And I was like, what is the next point as a, uh, you know, then is when I sort of got my principal engineer title of where I would go with my career. What would it look like? What would, uh, what would my contributions to the, the various fire teams at Custom Inc. look like? And I decided, I was like, well, this is a, you know, with a little nudge from one of our uh, directors that learning the cloud is where we want it to be, right? Custom Inc. had a recent success a couple of years ago where we finally got everything that we owned lifted and shifted into the cloud, right? We had no more physical servers and there was this, uh, uh, 
this desire now to sort of go all in on the cloud? What were the force multipliers that if we sort of adopted the cloud from the get-go rather than lifted and shifted our architecture that we might think about? And that we knew we had some successes from some of our um, uh, other engineers with Lambda where we hyper-optimized some of our workloads with Lambda. So the, the quest then was, is let's make DevOps better and let's do cloud native adoption better. And that's when I started to learn Lambda. I, you know, pretty much that's my main purpose of the cloud. Like it all stems out from Lambda from that point on. And the, uh, the Lambda product is about version 1.5 of that adoption process for me. So, you know, I first wrote node lambdas and, uh, you know, did more of that step and repeat process for custom ink of hyper optimizing some of our workloads and extracting some of our monoliths into these sort of really well tuned uh, microservices. And one of our engineers came to me and said, Ken, uh, you know, these are these are neat services, right? But they all look different. They all look like when you go from one to the other, it's uh, you have to wrap your head around the domain. You have to wrap your head around uh, how did this person, uh, person approach writing their plain old Ruby or JavaScript objects? Uh, and then sort of like back ticking, you know, how did they maybe do routing, right? Uh, or other things like that. And, and he had asked, how could you make uh, more structure for these, uh, these Lambda projects? I don't think he anticipated I would throw Rails into it. Yeah, so when you threw Rails into it and, and you got this going, um, was, there, was everyone on board immediately? Or what did it look like? Because you said you were writing uh, Node.js Lambdas um, before. So how, I guess how, to, how does Customing write their Lambda functions now? Is it, is it purely with, with Ruby, with Lambda, or is it a mix of both still? It's still a mix of both. And for us, most of the, uh, our Lambda adoption is still about tuning our, uh, our, our platform. So like we've been in business for 20 years. We had one big Java backend and one big uh, Rails front end. And one of the cool things about Custom Inc. that I really like about them is after sort of 20 years in business, you're afforded these uh, architectural ley lines that are well understood from business success, right? Like we're not architecting things at this point in our life where we're getting up to whiteboards and drawing things out and saying, this is good because it's good on a whiteboard. We're like, okay, this service is too big. We need to pull this out. And it's well understood that we need to pull this service out. Or this workload for, uh, like our image architecture for handling how clip art, our fonts, our, our designs are rendered. And that's mostly where our Lambda work has been falling on, where we take, uh, the image architecture, whether that's like a, uh, whether you're in our design lab and you're doing, uh, resizing fonts around our, our graphic art images, uploads, things like that. That's all for the most part, mostly now and more so later handled through Lambda. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and so when when you're kind of going through and you're saying the the hyper optimization process, when you I mean you said your your stuff is well understood, you've been around for a long time, so those things are uh, more clear. Um, did y'all hit any obstacles though when you were going through this process? You know, Lambda is still very hard if you're new to it. So the you know how to approach it like a, we've gone all in with Sam. Uh, you know, a, a few of our first projects were the serverless framework. Uh, but right about this time when I started learning uh, Lambda, the SAM framework was out, and I just fell in love with it immediately. Like it, it solved a lot of the problems that, like I found it very hard to learn serverless because I felt like I had to learn the serverless YAML language, which then would translate to cloud formation, and and, and you know, so I felt like I was learning two languages at once, and not even having coming from a perspective where I knew what even infrastructure as code was. So the, uh, so for us, I think it's it's basically. Yes, we standardized on SAM. Uh, we standardized on uh, 
if it was a microservice, uh, a cookie cutter approach, and we wrote cookie cutters for uh, Node, Python, and uh, and Ruby, so that if any engineer was getting started, they could basically hit these cookie cutters. Uh, it would have an optional uh, configuration to set up API gateway or not, but basically Lambda projects that had all of our business conventions around it, right? Like we use multiple AWS accounts rather than one single AWS account. So it had conventions in place for deploying them to different frame, uh, to different accounts or organizations uh, from development to staging and production, right? And and that made it easy, right? Like once you could easily say, hey, I can clone this uh, repo with a SAM init function, get my Lambda not only set up locally, uh, but also deployed in a development account with literally a couple of a uh, couple terminal commands and a few minutes later, that's that helped the adoption out. And then the uh, the Lambie framework is meant to sort of tell that story of, hey, how can we take these existing Rails applications that we have and just lift and shift them to Lambda so that we can you know get that uh uh, that compute uh, commodity out there and then start thinking about how do we do cloud native after that. And that's when other things like EFS and uh, some of this other stuff comes into play. Yeah, this is really interesting. Like, um, I think it's a, it's a really good point that you're kind of making. And it's, it's a lot of it kind of centers around uh, standardization. And it seems like mm-hmm. that's like a really big thing that, you know, with like even to a serverless framework, um, there's, there can be, and just with serverless and deployment frameworks in general, there can be hundreds of different ways that do things and to configure them um, and tons of different tutorials and projects and example templates of different ways and conventions that people do things. Um, and so standardizing those and kind of saying like, here's how we're going to do deployments with this infrastructure as code. Here's how we're going to build, like you said, cookie cutter uh, templates for each one of these different languages. Um, and here's our conventions for deployments. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like that's, that's something that... Um, when if you could go back in time, were you doing things not in that way first, and then it kind of led organically to structuring this out, or or how did that develop? Yeah, luckily one of the things we had at Customic, I think we have over a couple hundred applications, and you know even before we sort of adopted serverless, which would explode that number, right? Because if you started breaking out microservices or doing sort of more what you might call sort of proper like architectures that might have things smaller from the get go. And I'm not saying at all that microservices smaller from the get-go is proper. It, it really depends. But um, we had these things in place. It was a, I think it was a blog article done by GitHub a long time ago called Scripts to Rule Them All. And it was basically saying that no matter which project you move to, you would be able to do like these sort of uh, standardized script conventions for bootstrapping, setting up, and running the test of a project. Uh, and even though most of our projects were Rails, some of them had Elasticsearch, some of them had you know different uh, resources associated with them. We had all that in place. So the, the cookie cutter was easy to sort of adopt to that mentality. It means you had to do it from a different perspective, right? Like you had to write bin scripts around SAM, you know, uh, SAM uh, package and SAM deploy. But I think coming from a company that actually had some sort of standards, right, that was independent of the implementation, that helped our adoption out. So we didn't really have a lot of... Uh, it, it was difficult at first sort of saying, hey, we want to adopt SAM, because I think when people were writing serverless frame, uh, with a serverless framework or anything, right, to them, back then, two, three years, maybe four years ago, Lambda was very Wild West, right? Like, it didn't really matter how you uh, got that out, how you integrated it either with Jenkins or Travis or GitHub Actions or anything like that. As long as it was sort of like, hey, we got the compute out there, it's doing the function, uh, we're not really thinking about it. So I, I spent almost... Uh, four months just reading all the documentation, evaluating everything, going through this and sort of writing the process out and and looking for those things that say, okay, if we're doing it this way, what do we get out of it? Right. And I think the 
biggest one that I didn't understand at the beginning was that whole concept of infrastructure as code, right? And, and where those boundaries lie in the project, right? Like, sure, s- setting up a bucket and a DynamoDB table with HTTP API and, and a Lambda, that's like four. But like, knowing that you could do that all within the confines of one repo was just a game changer for us. Right? No longer you had to go to the web ops team or, you know, this infrastructure team and open up JIRA tickets and say, hey, spin this part up for me. Now it was all really in the developer. And we're still going through that transformation where we now realize that engineering has this sort of outsized capability that we're only still just sort of realizing on standing up our own infrastructure. This is a really good uh, topic to bring up. Um, so something you're getting out there is that you're still trying to, or you're still adopting or adapting uh, to mm-hmm. the transition uh, with your team. So I guess that'd be a question I'd bring up is, how have you seen the teams uh, develop and change? And, and what are you trying to push forward into the future uh, to make that better? Yeah, I think we're in this um, right now over the past, like, say, four months to maybe six months, we've been in this sort of active training, right? We've had enough pieces around to where we say, okay, we know um, where we want to architect things or how we may want to solve different problems. But, you know, if you're like, uh, if you're learning to drive, right, like for me, even though I sat in the back of my parents' car and by the time it came for me to drive, I knew how to go places, right? I knew where the mall was. I knew where things were, right? Because I looked out the window and I paid attention. But taking yourself there is a different thing, right? So we've had to actually actively uh, define some infrastructure and architecture goals and then pass those off to different engineering teams at different things and get them to actually work on those in isolation, right? And and have them work through the problems, right? So they have the uh, projects have been like, if you follow sort of a uh, base camp sort of shaped up, but then and have the freedom to sort of work with it in there. And it's been really interesting watching different engineers sort of like how they learn, right? So that's, you know, as I'm getting better at being a, uh, a senior engineer, it's it's learning how different people sort of like to be trained, right? Not all of them are like me. Not all of them like to just read documentation and kind of go quiet for a while, right? Some of them, uh, some people like to have sort of very collaborative training and stuff. But I think the biggest thing we've been doing at Custom Inc. is, is recognizing that we need to shift to, uh, you know, we've done training, we've allowed people to opt into it, but actually shifting to some projects that aren't just product based, but are actually infrastructure based that will have pay those dividends for like the cloud native adoption uh, later on and just setting those up for the engineers to work on. Yeah, this is a really good. Uh, it's a really good topic. So when it comes to how you basically approach uh, having developers learn about serverless, you found that having them work in isolation and even though certain people on the team may already know how to do it and just knock it out. You're allowing your developers to then go through that process, you know, struggle with it, fail a little bit. And is it is it about trying to build up the context around not just not only just trying to implement the thing, but also trying to un- understand the nuances that here's in the AWS console and, and switching in between terminal and all that stuff? Is that is that kind of what it looks like? Yeah, I think the thing is, is mostly... um. You know, so like I, I wrote an article that was a Sam getting started, right? And it, it was basically, uh, I put it on our Dev2 uh, account. I can maybe do a, a show note link for it. But to me, it was like this. If you were going from zero, like you knew nothing at all, like maybe you had, all you had was an AWS account and that's it. You were looking to learn uh, Lambda using Ruby as a microservice. So I wrote that whole process out, you know, just a little workshop and a lot of the engineers, they don't know about those decisions, about like, you know, what SAM is, what is it for me, right? Like, you can show them an article that says, hey, here's how you get Hello World in. But if they're like, well, I need to, 
uh, listen to events for a bucket. Well, if you're custom ink, you probably have hundreds and hundreds of buckets. So like, how do you listen to those events when you can't create the bucket from the infrastructure resource, right? Like that's, uh, so learning the boundaries of where like click ops lies and the, the amount of stuff that, um, that you have to sort of like recognize that if you kind of went through this journey of about a year and you're like, okay, I know what Sam is. I know what all these things are. Um, I know how GitHub actions work with CICD and you kind of go to engineers that, you know, maybe they were back in Travis back in the day. They just haven't had to solve a lot of these problems. So you have to give them the, the, the room to sort of like re-explore that. And then more importantly, to push past where you are, you know, other people have been, right? So like, uh, if you give them enough time and the right sort of problems to solve and, and just saying, you know, the mission of like, Hey, this is where we want to go, get us there. Then they're going to learn stuff that you don't know. And that to me is exciting, right? Cause like I said, I'm definitely not smart enough to know everything. And I love it when, uh, when people sort of like, they know more than me and I can learn from them and stuff like that. And that's the type of projects we've been setting up. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, no, that, that's something, uh, I feel like with myself as well when I'm working, uh, around people is like having people around that, that know more than you do that, that are adding things that you didn't even think about before. Um, and then you can kind of just like watch what they're doing and kind of emulate them as well. Um, you know, it makes, it makes everyone kind of rise up, uh, you know, together. And that's, that's fantastic. Uh, another question I have is now after going through this process with custom ink and with your own personal, uh, development and your perspective changing, how would you approach building an application, like maybe a greenfield application, uh, from scratch in 2020? Yeah, I would definitely use the tools most familiar with me and that, and that, by far as rails so the the lambie gem that i wrote it basically uh uh it basically commoditizes api gateway as like uh apache or nginx in the cloud so one of the things that i learned early on is that um api gateway and the way that rails works and i think the same thing would be true of say express uh uh and maybe even like um what are some of the ones with python like flask right where uh, you basically just have to translate this one event into another event. So that means once I did that work to sort of translate the API gateway event into what was called a rack event for Rails so that you can just get a Rails app in there, to me, now the problem is, is like I can write Rails apps very quickly. And in fact, we have a couple projects at Custom Inc. where I've just gone in and done internal tooling for the team, and that's a basic Rails app. So like one app that I did uh, a few months ago, was a, it's kind of like Photoshop in the cloud, where basically uh, I hooked the Rails app up to DynamoDB and S3, and I created a system for our creative teams to create layered content images and personalized images, so they can they can upload Photoshop layers and PNG files. They can spec out like you know where placement of images are for personalization, so they get like these all this work where they are doing where they're handing things off for the cre- uh, for the social teams or the marketing teams. They can now sort of self-service inside using this application, and it's basically a Rails with Turbo Links and uh, you know a bunch of libvips image processing to sort of compress images down in real time. And I will do that over and over again all day long. There's like so many internal tools. Um, uh, I think it's called like entrepreneurship. If you're in a bigger company, you probably need a lot of internal tooling. And I would do that day and day again with just Rails, just spin it up, connect it either to DynamoDB. Now we have the capacity. You can easily connect a Rails app to RDS through uh, the newly released RDS proxy, uh, which makes the database connections work for those that may not, st- you know, that still may be working in from like a, uh, a classic ORM, not force everybody to go DynamoDB if they're not ready for it. Yeah, that's really interesting. This is something that um, Nader, Nader Davitt talks about quite a bit, which is uh, he builds a lot of patterns 
out there for the community as well. And it's, it's crazy to see that with the infrastructure as code side, additional automation, obviously custom ink has a lot of tooling that you've mentioned, uh, to kind of do this. Uh, and Lambda is a great use case where it's, you know, kind of combines all these things together to build apps really fast. Um, we're, we're really heading into a, a, like a new area with software development where a lot of the complexities that were involved in building all these things, like we, you know, obviously if you went through the full spectrum from servers to containers to now worrying about only your function code, um, we're also doing that as well. We're taking that next step, which, you know, might be the no code. Um, but it's very, very interesting. Yeah. And I guess like I'd ask you, like, do you think that that is the direction of the industry is going where we're getting more automation, more templates, more uh, patterns? And then after we hit that level, you know, what comes next? What do you think? Yeah. You know, and I totally co-opted uh, that as basically a full stack service. Right. So I, I saw he was doing that like he's uh, for Amplify. Right. And I was like, that's it. That's what that's what I want to do. Right. I want people to, to say, hey, I want to do full stack service. And for me, full stack was can I get the full stack in there? Right. A, a Rails app. Uh, if you start off as a Lambda quick start guide, you will basically have a Rails app that's fully ready for JavaScript development, whether it be with TypeScript or web, it's got Webpacker integrated into it. Uh, you know, you throw DynamoDB in there or an RDS proxy and you've got literally your full stack, right? That's, to me, that's the idea that, uh, you can take the existing frameworks that we have, like you don't have to invent new frameworks for serverless, right? So there's this, you know, fatigue, right, that I talked about with JavaScript frameworks. But what if the the commoditization of serverless, you know, what Simon Mordley has sort of talked about, and, you know, that all the complexity sort of is below the waterline. To me, that that's actually pretty much here, right? Like, that's, that's it's, it's here right now. And I don't know if we've actually sort of recognized it, right? Like that, oh, my God, I can take this full Rails framework or this full stack, and with the exception of... Uh, you know, it's a little bit probably hard to set up RDS proxy, right? So you probably need somebody to set that up like, uh, but like I can have my Rails app. I can have literally my Heroku of sorts right now. Uh, and I think we're slowly going to start to see more of that and realize that, hey, maybe the tools that we had now, right? You know, I definitely think there's like the, the Amplify stuff is just incredibly powerful, right? The, a lot of it, uh, it's, it's built in natively to AWS, but more and more we're going to see that that the promise of Lambda, the commoditization of that compute, right? And API Gateway is the commoditization of, of, uh, of Apache or Nginx. And I don't have to think about it, right? It, I can deliver business value almost immediately. And I, I think that's, that realization is coming. That's a, that's a perfect way to kind of summarize that. It's really exciting too. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear that you, you've seen that full stack serverless and that uh, Lambda kind of hits and checks those boxes. That's really cool. So if anybody's working with Ruby on Rails um, and is trying to get started with Lambda, um, definitely check out the Lambda project. Uh, so recently you wrote an article called uh, Model Book Ideas for AWS Lambda File Systems uh, following the release of AWS Lambda File Systems, it looks like. Um, so what does this uh, release mean and what does it open the door to uh, that maybe wasn't possible before and, and, and is AWS, I guess, going to keep doing things like this? I definitely think we're going to see more news like this over and over again where you get these releases that sort of change the game on like what's available to do in AWS Lambda. Uh, for us, EFS actually unlocked two big critical applications that we could sort of move over to it. And I spent some time and did some postulating on what are some bad ideas that people could do. But for us, I think we're going to do some really good uses for it, right? Like we have one uh, uh, font rendering service where we needed about 200 uh, font files that needed to be shared between the services. And we've always wanted to port that over to Lambda. And now that sort of capability is, is sort of afforded to us because you have the storage that can be attached and and literally synchronized 
and you just don't really, you know, you, you didn't have to worry about the temp storage. Like we were going to do a solution before uh, where the fonts may come in from an S3 uh, bucket or something like that. But, you know, I think that's been on the list. Like people have been asking for a feature like that for, for many, many years. And it's it, there's bound to be more stuff like that that's going to come out that's going to radically shift exactly what you think, right? We can think back maybe to, I think, when Chris Munns talked about the VPC configs, right? It used to be that people would discount Lambda and say, well, I can't do this because of this cold start issue. Because let's say my Lambda needed to talk to a, a, a VPC, maybe it needed memcache, or maybe it did need RDS like a database uh, before the proxy was out. That would cut that argument off, right? And once the VPC sort of cold starts were sort of solved, that opened up a whole bunch of things for us. And the, uh, the Elastic file system was a, a huge one for us. And I, I can't wait to see what people do with it. Like, uh, I'd like to see some more content out on there. Like, I've heard, like, uh, you know, big machine learning things. But I'd kind of like to see what people are thinking about it with from sort of the legacy uh, current frameworks, right? How you might use that, that storage in a way that sort of uh, made sense, not abused it. This is a great topic. I know that we're, we're running a little, a little bit, a little bit long, but I think one, one thing about that is a lot of times when we talk about serverless, we talk about, um, we almost talk about just like building a Lambda function. Almost everything is like starting from scratch. We're a new startup. But in, in reality, most of these companies have existed for a long time. They already have applications. They're trying to optimize their stuff similar to custom ink. And so I guess like if you had to give advice to a company that's gone through or that, that may go through a similar process to custom ink, um, what would you tell them? Would you tell them to go the serverless route now to give it a try? Or would you tell them to go an alternative route? Or how would you, how would you approach that? Yeah, I think our success story has been with identifying points that we can find the stuff that's really expensive, that's really painful as you're scaling your infrastructure. And if it's a, it could be a, a single Rails controller action, right? Like one that's literally can be distilled down to one function and take that thing out and move it over to Lambda and just get familiar with the fact that you can sort of hyper-optimize hyper compute uh, for one critical path in your infrastructure. And that sort of whets your appetite, right? And then do the training, do the things in place that sort of, you know, take that cycle and iterate on it. But then also recognize that um, Lambda now, you can sort of put these larger frameworks in it. It can literally do the full stack for you. So there's a lift and shift story there. So look for those lift and shift stories and you know just keep watching out for the news and look for when you can actually take X service and put it into Lambda. And don't do, you know, I think um, uh, there was an article about like the lift and shift shot clock, right? You know, by Forrest. Don't stop there, right? The goal is not to say, hey, can I take, and lift and shift everything that I've done in EC2 and Lambda, but you want to learn of, about the new things that you can do now that you know about Lambda, right? So how would you like uh, evolve the service that maybe you've lift and shifted? What are the things that you would maybe eventually want to rewrite in the service so that you can sort of take advantage of the uh, uh, the infrastructure that's there? For us, a lot of the ones were like uh, uh, observability and instrumentation, right? Once you're in Lambda, you know, CloudWatch is there, right? CloudWatch Insights is there, you know, embedded metrics. Uh, so we're, before we were using tools like, say, New Relic uh, Insights and, and pushing things off. Now we're looking to use CloudWatch and, and its observability and instrumentation tools a lot more. And just keep playing those over and over again, right? So hyper-optimize, dump the big things in there, and then look for the ways of either rewriting those big things or what are the ways that when you would approach a new project that you might approach it from a, a a cloud native or a serverless first approach. And that's that's a lot of what we're doing. 
Well, I think that that, I think that that comes to a great close. And I guess like one thing that I would ask, is there anything that you want to promote, Ken? Yeah, definitely uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's Metaskills. Um, Metaskills on most everything, Xbox included, uh, Twitter, GitHub, etc. Uh, there is the uh, the Custom Ink Technology blog, which is uh, uh, technology.customink.com. The Lambi product site is at lambi.custominktech.com, and I can include all these links out there, but I am an AWS serverless hero. I'm a, I love talking to people online or helping out with problems. If you felt like there's anything, like uh, all my DMs on Twitter are open. Uh, I would be happy to talk about anything or answer any questions if anybody had anything. Perfect. I think that does it. Thanks again for being a guest on the podcast, Ken. I really appreciate you having or coming on and kind of sharing your insights into Custom Inc. and how you think about uh, serverless development and all these different areas. Yeah, Ryan, I appreciate it too. Thank you. And to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless Podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out TalkingServerless.io and please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic serverless guest.